TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is That Paleo Show with your hosts, Stephanie Wozolik, Dr. Yana James, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Stephanie Boslick. I'm Dr. Yana James. And I'm Dr. Brett Hill. We have another fascinating guest on our show today who will be able to give us a new perspective and slight variation on the primal diet. Paul Jaminet is an astrophysicist turned software engineer turned health guru and advocate. Paul and his wife, Xiao Cheng, published a very successful book called Her Diet, Regain Health and Lose Weight by Eating the Way You Were Meant to Eat. And he's also a regular blogger at perfecthealthdiet.com. In addition to blogging, writing, and speaking, Paul is active in the Ancestral Health Society and serves as an editor of the Journal of Evolution and Health. Although the perfect health diet varies slightly from what we've spoken about so far on this show, Paul is very scientific and methodical about his work, and I'm sure that the discussion today will be awesome. So welcome to the show, Paul. Uh, thank you, Stephanie. It's great to be with you. Welcome. So, um, Paul, from what I understand, you began your health transformation through the discovery of paleo in the beginning. Could you talk a little bit about how this all started for you and then why you felt conventional paleo wasn't exactly right for you? Well, for, for both my wife and I, it started really with our personal health problems. So by our late 30s, we were both having trouble. Um, my problems were mostly neurological, sort of memory loss, uh, lost balance, very slow reaction times, and uh, I, I really worried I was getting Alzheimer's or something. Uh, and my wife had a lot of, uh, uh, she had hypothyroidism and a, uh, a lot of re- reproductive problems, ovarian cysts, uterine fibroids, and endometriosis. And so we... we you know, just didn't feel we should be in such poor health in our 30s. And, uh, uh, you know, but we kept going to doctors and didn't get any help. And uh, then we discovered the paleo diet in 2005. And that was the first thing we tried that made a big difference. Um, but we ran into some problems. And uh, uh, the biggest the biggest issue was that um, our implementation was, was too low carb. And in, I, in particular, ran into a lot of problems with that. Mm. And uh, it took about it took about five years to sort of sort out, sort through all the problems. Um, and uh, but we finally got what we think is a really healthy implementation of uh, of a Paleolithic type diet. Um, it's probably closer to what. Uh, paleolithic peoples actually ate than than most of the other paleo diets, um, and it's also very helpful, and uh, and also very delicious. So we get uh, we get the uh, uh, it, it actually turns out to resemble a lot of classic uh, gourmet cuisines, and uh, so we were very pleased about that. You get to uh, be healthy and enjoy your food too. Oh, nice. Um, so. Uh- 
I, Paul, I've shared with you a little bit about my um, journey. So I started with gluten-free and then went low-carb and then finally paleo. So I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, but I, I was quite interested when I first came across uh, your work about talking about safe starches. So from having come from that low-carb perspective, I, I still find that I don't quite understand what you mean by safe starches and what levels you're looking at and who it applies to. Um, so if you could go into a bit of that, that would be really helpful. Okay, well... Um so safe starches just means a, a starchy plant food that that doesn't contain toxins after cooking. So uh, the cereal grains have a very bad reputation in the in the paleo movement, and with, with good reason for the most part, because uh, they are very toxin rich. Um, the reason their toxins are so harmful for us compared to other plants is that uh, is that they're eaten by mammals, uh, you know, herbivores who graze on grassy plants like cows and horses and so on. And so they've evolved uh, compounds which specifically act to suppress mammalian digestion so that their seeds can pass through the digestive tract unharmed. And those compounds can be uh, quite harmful to us. Um, but fortunately, uh, in some uh, starchy plants e- either don't make those, uh, you know, like uh, many of the in-ground tubers, like potatoes, or they're destroyed in cooking. Uh, so white rice is a good example. Um, so white rice is fairly toxin-free uh, once you've cooked it, and, uh, um, you know, so it's pretty safe. So, um, you know, so the perspective of our diet is we're not we're not trying to exactly mimic uh, the Paleolithic, but we're trying to get the optimal diet for human health. And so part of our goal is to eliminate toxins from the diet, uh, and then to get all of the nutrients that we need in balanced proportions. And one of the nutrients that we need for optimal health are carbohydrates, um, especially glucose. And so we don't need a lot. We don't need uh, quite as many as uh, most people eat, uh, but it's yet some. So, um, and and we estimate the optimal amount for most people at around thirty percent of energy. So, Paul, you mentioned a couple of safe starches there. You mentioned the ingrain tubers and the white rice. What else constitutes a safe starch in, in your diet? Well, those are those are the main ones. You know, most of the uh, uh, in-ground tubers and corms and and starchy roots. Uh, I generally make up the great bulk of the of the safe starches, and then you know things like plantains are fairly starchy uh, before they ripen, and uh, uh, so there's uh, uh, you know things like taro is another in ground. It, it's a it's a corm. Uh, we eat that fairly often. Uh, Tapioca made from uh, cassava uh, is another common common one that you can find. Um, so there there aren't there aren't a huge number of safe starches. Uh, you know there are probably others. Uh, we use buckwheat from time to time uh, because it's good for good for baking. Uh, but uh, you know a, there's a lot of plants where the toxicity hasn't been really investigated. So. Um, 
you know, so we have a, a relatively short list, but it's it's long enough that uh, uh, you can make very satisfying foods. So what about some of the others that are popular at the moment, like the quinoa and the uh, amaranth and those sort of things? Where, where do you sit with those, Paul? Well, I, I'm sort of dubious about those. I, I think we gave them a grade of C in in our in our book or on our blog. Yeah, and the trouble is, there's not there's not that much evidence of how of how safe or unsafe they may be. Um, you know, they they just haven't really been investigated, uh, and some people do have problems with them. So, uh, you know, I I don't think it's really necessary to eat them. There there are other foods like white rice and potatoes that have been much better vetted. Uh, you know, both studied studied in the laboratory and eaten. Uh, by billions of people. Uh, so I think we can be pretty confident that white rice is pretty healthy. So if you, if you look at lifespans, the countries that eat a lot of white rice tend to, uh, live longer and be healthier than, uh, countries that eat wheat, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. So Paul, in the beginning, you said that, uh, the perfect health diet tends to resemble paleo diets a little bit more because it's higher, a little bit higher in carbs. Um, so what are some problems that would kind of indicate that you aren't getting enough carbs in your diet? Uh, well, probably one of the first symptoms a lot of people get is, is they sort of feel like they're drying out. Uh, they get dry eyes, uh, dry mouth. Often dry eyes is the first symptom. Um, so we need carbohydrates to make mucus and uh, the mucin to make tears, saliva, um, and uh, uh a lot of to make uh, the fluids that lubricate our joints. Um, so, you know, I I would bet that probably dry eyes is is the most common uh, symptom when people are that you know that, that people notice. Um, in in general, uh, what, so what happens is the body sort of triages glucose and. Uh, uh, you know, when you eat a very low carb diet, it, it makes sure that there's enough glucose. It sort of, uh, tamps down the immune system so that it doesn't use as much glucose and it reduces production of mucus and, uh, uh, tears and saliva. And, you know, all of those things you can do without them for a period of time. Uh, but they make you a little bit more vulnerable to, uh, uh, infections, you know, so mucus is an important barrier to infections in the sinuses and the gut. And, you know, tears are, and saliva are important for, uh, the health of your mouth and your eyes. Um, you know, so if people are too low carb, then they tend to, they tend to start running into problems sooner or later. So, um- uh, Sorry, Paul, what, what's the sort of line in the sand? Because isn't it the case that a lot of things that, well, when we're talking about immunity, that a lot of uh, bacterias and cancer cells tend to like to live off glucose, which our body converts starches to pretty readily? So is there a sort of, a, a, you said about 30%. Does that go yeah. to everyone, whether they're athletic or whether they're not? Yeah, I... I, I think that's a that's a good number for everyone. I think it's uh, uh, you know there are individual variations in different health conditions. So um, it, you know, but for healthy people, I think that's an excellent number, and it should be a, a target 
or you know people who are who are sick or have infections or so on. Um, so infections are an interesting case. So so yeah, back to done glucose, um, and so lower carb diets can be helpful for some uh, bacterial infections, um, and very often for gut conditions. If you have uh, bad bacteria in your gut, then if you eat a low carb diet. Uh, you'll sort of tamp down the activity of those bacteria, and it may uh, alleviate your symptoms. Um, but the trouble is that there are all kinds of different microbes and, and pathogens, and not all of them feed on glucose. So, you know, so pathogens that have mitochondria can feed on fats and ketones. And, uh, you know, so things like fungi and protozoa and, uh, other parasites can, uh, you know, can, can thrive just fine on, on your body when you're eating a low carb diet. So, um, you know, so there, so there are trade offs and, uh, there's no, there's no extreme that, that, you know, when you go to an extreme diet, it'll protect you against some conditions, but it'll make you more vulnerable to other conditions. Um, and, you know, some people may have those uh, infections. You know, I, I was like that. I um, had certain infections, and so I got negative, very low-carb diet pretty quickly. You know, other people would be quite healthy for months or years, uh, you know, but then uh, something may something may change. And they start having trouble. Um, so the thirty percent number that we mentioned—that—that's one that uh, you know provides your body with good nourishment, you know, enough for the brain, enough for immune function, enough for mucus production and tears and saliva, uh, but not much extra for anything else. So an extra to feed bacteria. Yeah, and that number makes sense to me, Paul, because that, that does fit in with some of the studies we've seen around the ratios in the hunter-gatherer diet and, and how much fat, protein, and carb they had. So that, that does kind of make sense. Um, one of the questions I had for you was about, uh, you know, you mentioned the rice before, saying, look, people in, in countries that eat lots of rice tend to be healthier. Um, you know, I guess that comes back to that argument of, like, better versus best. Like, you know, we, if we compare them to people eating wheat, then they're doing better. But, but it's still kind of, I guess, in my view, I sort of say, well, does that still answer the question of what's actually best? You know, it's, it's better than eating wheat, but does that mean it's the best? Or, or you know, it's not comparing to other people, I guess, or other large populations who aren't having any grains at all. Does that make sense? And, and yeah, what, what's the research show on that? I, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, it, it certainly doesn't prove that, uh, that eating rice is the best, is the best thing to do. But, um, but we've got other sources of, of evidence for that. So, um, you know, we, we know that, uh, we know what most of the toxins in rice are and, and we know that they get degraded in, in cooking. Um, you know, so there's no, there's no real reason why it should be a, a harmful food. Um, and in general, that's what, you know, one thing that makes all this dietary science so interesting is that it's not that easy to figure out what the best yeah. diet is. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's not like there are any other populations where you have, you know, billions of people eating very low-carb yeah. diets, and you can really get good data on what, what happens to them. So, um, you know, and we have some reason to believe that you know, Paleolithic peoples were quite a bit healthier than uh, 
uh, you know, than in general people were until very recently. Um, but, you know, we, we don't know for sure exactly how healthy they were. And, uh, and actually there, uh, you know, there is some data. We do know that the Inuit frequently had atherosclerosis. So there, there have been some, uh, preserved uh, ancient Inuit skeletons and, uh, and bodies where we can uh, uh, measure how much atherosclerosis they had. And, uh, you know, so, so we know their health wasn't, wasn't totally yeah. perfect. Fair enough. Well, and I guess it's just like we can compare all of these, um, these, these starches as well. And some obviously are going to be more nutrient dense than others. So I'm sure like your sweet potato has a lot more nutrients in it than rice. So if you are choosing between the two, um, one, I guess, would be healthier than the other. But um, my, I, I'm just wondering, I know we talk a lot about the ketogenic diet, like ketogenic diet, um, living off ketones and stuff. And I, uh, I understand you have a bit of a different take on that uh, and might involve some intermittent fasting. Is that, uh, is that the case? Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, we're, we're supportive of uh, the ketogenic diet, especially as a therapy. Um, so a lot of people with neurological conditions have these conditions because uh, for genetic or other reasons, they have difficulty on, uh, you know, their, their brains have difficulty living on glucose. And ketones are the other uh, macronutrient for the brain. And so ketogenic diets can can work around a lot of the problems that uh, that people have with ordinary, you know, that lead to these neurological issues. And so we've had, you know, we have a set of recommendations for how to implement a, a ketogenic version of our diet, and um, and we've had a lot of people have great success for it. So if you look in the literature, the main thing you see. Is is ketogenic diets for epilepsy, you know, which has a history of about 90 years. It's, you know, it's very well proven. But they really haven't tested ketogenic diets for a lot of other conditions. Um, in our book, for anyone who has any neurological condition, and we found that dozens of our readers were able to cure their, uh, their mental health conditions and uh, other conditions, especially migraine brains uh, by eating it, uh, the ketogenic version of our diet. And so it looks like, you know, ketogenic diets can be really helpful for a tremendous number of conditions. And there's a good chance that they're helpful against cancer. We, we know they're helpful against brain cancer, and they might be helpful against other cancers too. Um, and uh, they're helpful against bacteria. We mentioned earlier uh, because bacteria can't utilize ketones, um, and you tend to lower blood glucose levels and uh, intracellular glucose levels when you eat a ketogenic diet. Um, you know, so it's definitely it's a very valuable uh, uh, thing in, to have in your toolkit uh, as a as a therapy. Mm. Um, Paul, I. I'm someone who my endocrine system's been quite destroyed from my years of eating poorly. Um, so I find I'm really sensitive to starches, but I, I noticed somewhere that um, you recommend lowering your fat intake to increase weight loss. 
during a ketogenic diet? Is that is that what I read? Did I read that correctly, um, or was I? N- no, not exactly. So okay. So our our diet is uh, is focused on making sure that you're well nourished, and we believe that a lot a lot of the reason yo-yo diet is so common is that is that people cycle between different nutrient deficiencies. Mm. So they adopt a restrictive diet in order to lose weight, and it works for a few months, then their body becomes really deficient in some nutrient, and their brain senses that and makes them hungry. It says, you know, go get more food, you're, you're malnourished. Oh, that makes sense. And, you know, so then they, then they regain weight, and then they say, oh, this diet isn't working. I'd better switch to a totally opposite diet. You know, so they switch from a vegan diet that worked for a while and then stopped working to a low-carb paleo diet or something, and that works for a few months. And then you get the opposite, you know, some different nutrient deficiency, and then your brain makes you hungry and it stops working. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our focus is really on long-term success and, and good health and making sure the body's well-nourished in, in all nutrients throughout uh, your weight loss efforts. And it, if you have a lot of extra weight that's stored as fat, the one nutrient that you don't need to eat as much of uh, is fat because that can be re- released from your adipose tissue. Um, and so you still need fat-associated nutrients. So there's all kinds of these nutrients like choline and folate and vitamin A uh, and vitamin K. Um, you know, so you, you should you should still be eating uh, foods with their natural food fats. Uh, but you don't need a lot of oil um, and things like that because you have you have those kinds of fatty acids in in your body, uh, and if you restrict calories, your adipose tissue can release them. Um, so, what we try to tell people is, you know, don't don't reduce your your carbohydrate or your protein when you go on a weight loss diet. Um, you know, because the amounts that we recommend of those are the amounts that you need in order to be optimally nourished and you want to remain well nourished while you're losing it. So eat a similar amount. Um, but our diet is fairly fat rich. It's, uh, you know, it's normally 50%, uh, fat by calories. And, you know, so there's a little bit of oil. You know, we recommend things like butter, coconut milk, uh, sour cream and so on as a, as, flavoring agents. So instead of having a baked potato with two tablespoons of sour cream on top, uh, you know, as as you might do if you weren't on a weight loss diet, we would recommend more, you know, flavor your potato with a small amount of sour cream and some vinegar, some salt, uh, and it can still taste good, but it won't have as many calories, it, especially it won't have as many of the fat calories that uh, that you can get from inside your body. So essentially you're saying you're still keeping the fats in, you're just lowering the ratio a little bit, so it's not going really low fat. Yeah, that's right. You're still, you know, we, we recommend, uh, you know, not trying to lose weight too quickly. Mm. Uh, there's plenty of people who have lost two pounds a week on, on our diet. Uh, they tend to be very enthusiastic, you know, so they they get regular exercise and they... You know, very disciplined about sticking to the diet. Um, you know, lots of other people 
you know, lose weight at half a pound or one pound a week. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, that's not too hard. Uh, so, yeah. you know, but the, the good thing about keeping yourself well nourished is that there doesn't seem to be the same, you know, I, I haven't really heard of anyone who lost weight and then regained it yeah. on, on our approach. Well, so it's about being healthy, isn't it? Not so much about the, the body mass and result. It's about making sure that you're nourishing your body and your body will stabilize to a, a, a body shape that's adequate for its needs. Yeah, that's right. So it, it's really important to focus on health first and, and weight second. Yeah, that's great. That's that's certainly something we definitely agree on, Paul, and we talk about that a lot. Um, Paul, I wanted to go on and talk a little bit. Um, I know uh, on my other podcast show, The Wellness Guys, we interviewed uh, David Gillespie, and he talks a lot about fructose and, and is not a big fan of that at all. Uh, but I know you've sort of got a different take on that and sort of uh, separate um, you know, the high fructose corn syrup perhaps from the whole fruits and, and you know, talk about the difference between those two. Can you expand that a bit for us? Yeah, so we basically believe um, you, like I like I said, we we recommend getting maybe thirty percent of calories as carbohydrates, and we think it's optimal to get maybe eighty five percent of the carb calories as glucose and fifteen percent as fructose. So you know that's why starches are a significant uh, part of the carbohydrate intake that we recommend because they're all glucose don't have any fructose. Hmm. Um, but there's some evidence that it's actually good for you to get a little bit of fructose. And uh, the fructose goes straight to your liver and it helps uh, keep your your liver to- topped off with glycogen. Um, and so it can help improve regulation of blood sugar. Uh, if you get a, a little bit of fructose, something like 15% right, of your carbohydrates, and that turns out to be uh, just about the natural proportions you'd get if you if you mix, you know, some natural fruits or sugary plants, like like say, into your your meals and your food. Um, you know, so if you combine roughly equal weights of a starch like potato or white rice with uh, beets or apples or bananas. Uh, you know, then you'll end up with just about the perfect uh, glucose and fructose composition. So, you know, sort of a few simple rules is, you know, ha- include both starchy and sugary plants in in your food and in your meals, uh, but don't add any sugar. And uh, and then you'll be just about perfect as far as fructose oh, is concerned. Well, Paul, we only have a few minutes left, but I'd really like you to talk a little bit about um, how circadian rhythms can affect your health. So I know you talk about maybe eating at certain times of the day and sleeping and that sort of thing. Um, so in a few minutes, could you just maybe elaborate on that for us? Yeah, well, circadian rhythms are extremely important, and uh, and we've only just been realizing exactly how important they are. But if you look at, like, centenarian studies, uh the things that they all have in common, uh, number one is they cook their food. You know, they eat natural whole, whole foods. Uh, but then once you go beyond that, uh, there's not necessarily so much commonality in particular foods they eat, but there's a great deal of commonality in their lifestyle. And they have really good 
circadian rhythms. They're physically active. They get exercise. They get sun exposure during the day. They get a good night's sleep every night. Um, they socialize with other people. So these are all things that influence our circadian rhythms. And we also know that people who have disrupted circadian rhythms, like who do night shift work or who travel a lot, are frequently jet-lagged, um, or who suffer sleep apnea that disrupts their sleep, or who don't get exercise. It leads to a host of health problems. And it turns out anything anything that disrupts circadian rhythms, it doesn't matter what during the day that disrupts your circadian rhythms, it leads to the same suite of health problems that you get if you don't see any bright light during the day, which is another factor driving circadian rhythms. And... Um, and it has a huge effect on lifespan. It's, uh, you know, it's around six years uh, that it takes off your life if you um, are sedentary or if you don't get bright light exposure during the day or if you get too much bright light exposure at night. Um, you know, and that's a that's a huge impact. That's, uh, you know, as big as anything. It's, it's comparable to smoking. Um, so... You know, circadian rhythms are extremely important for health, and the main factors that affect them, you want to get bright light, especially sunlight, during the day. You want to get dim amber light at night. You want to get a good night's sleep. You want to get exercise during daylight hours, you know, a certain amount of physical activity every day. Uh, you want your meals and your food to... Uh, you know, coincide with that daytime period, you know, with period of physical activity. Um, don't eat in the middle of the night. Don't eat um, tongue after sunset. Um, and it can help to do intermittent fasting, you know, to have a somewhat longer fast. It, it should be at least 12 hours overnight. Um, I tend to do about a 16-hour overnight fast. Um, I try to make a point of getting 10 minutes of exercise before every meal. Uh, so I usually go out running in the middle of the day just before my first meal um, and try to get a little more exercise just before dinner. Um, and social engagement during the day is also important. Uh, if you can't uh, interact with other people, then bring up some uh, faces of people on your computer screen and look at them so that you, you can fool your brain into thinking that you have friends. Is it busy to be on people on Skype, Count Paul? <laughs> uh, yes, that's right. So you're... We have to make sure we flick on our yep, video at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, so this is, this is disrupting my circadian rhythms because it's uh, 11 p.m. Yeah. Oh, no, Well, Paul, I think that's really all the time we have today, so we really appreciate you staying up uh, and... Um, well past bedtime. Yeah, past bedtime. <laughs> we appreciate it so much. It's really great to hear um, a bit of a variety from what we were maybe used to hearing. So um, if you want to know more about Paul and the Perfect Health Diet, check out his book, Perfect Health Diet, Regain Health and Lose Weight by Eating the Way You Were Meant to Eat. And the website as well, so perfecthealthdiet.com. And uh, Paul actually just told us as well that he's going to be 
possibly heading over to Australia, maybe in July. So uh, maybe we'll get to catch up with you then, Paul. Yeah, I hope so. I'm really looking forward to visiting uh, Australia, and I hope we can make it out to Adelaide. And see. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, that would be awesome. So until next week, check us out on Facebook, share your story, and help to grow the Paleo Tribe worldwide. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Hi, Dr. Brett Hill from The Wellness Guys here. I've just returned from emceeing the Mind Forum in Sydney, and I have to tell you, the information presented was absolutely amazing. We had internationally renowned speakers, including Dr. Martha Herbert and Nora Gagoutis, presenting, and it just blew me away. But as I looked around at the 500-odd people in attendance, I had to wonder how much of this is actually going to be put into action. Now, if you want to convert information into knowledge and intention into action, then you simply must be at the Wellness Breakthrough in Melbourne on the 14th of June. The three wellness guys and Karen Smith are going to get down and dirty and help you break through the next level of your mind, body and soul. Tickets are just $97 but up until the 1st of June they're just $50 and you can bring a friend for free. So to book your seats go to thewellnesscouch.com and click on events. We can't wait to see you there.